Pop Podcast this week. We're live at the Prince Charles Cinema in London for our 250th episode. Oh, yes. Just as we rehearse, beautifully done. Can take that off. It says here, audience goes wild. Excellent. Uh, hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. Uh, yes, this is our 250th episode. They said we'd never get this far. They said we could never get this far. And after they heard the first few episodes, they said we should never get this far. In fairness, yeah, here we are, 250 not out, which is more than any English batsman, living or dead, is able to say. It's true. I looked it up on the internet earlier on, and the internet is never wrong. Uh, over the next couple of hours, you'll be getting lots of hot cricketing facts from me, uh, and we'll be doing everything you've come to expect from the Empire podcast over the last five years or so. So there'll be discussion of movie news, Helena Harrow will bang on about Hamilton, uh, we'll talk about the week's big films, I'll bang on about Marvel, um, we'll have top chat top chat with one of our favourite ever podcast guests back for a second helping and Phil Dissembling will read aloud from his favourite cinema book The Cinema of Christoph Koslowski Variations on Destiny and Chance by Marek Haltoff it really is a once in a lifetime opportunity never to be missed um, so it's the usual stuff really only with an extra patina of, sh- of, of, of shit really <laughs> on with the show this week I'm joined by 250 colleagues of such lethal cunning uh, no Three. Three colleagues of such lethal cunning, which is much more manageable. Uh, first up is our resident geek queen, a lady who recently celebrated when Supernatural, her favourite TV show, hit its own 250th episode in style, with an episode in which, and I'm quoting here from EW's own recap, Sam and Dean, or is it Dean and Sam, I honestly can't tell which is which, took their shirts off and oiled each other up for 37 minutes straight. Wow. <laughs> Sounds like a real doozy. Will you please welcome Helen O'Hara! Once again, slandering my favourite show. Hello, everybody. In what way? Tell me, tell me that did not happen. It didn't Fake happen. Fake news! I'm sure it didn't happen. All right. Do you know there were people out here? What? I know, it's amazing. Uh, next up is someone who's new to the live podcast, but please be gentle with him. Uh, he's our online editor. He's a Star Wars nut who's seen the original Star Wars, A New Hope, about 250 times. He's seen The Empire Strikes Back, 250 times. He's seen Return of the Jedi, 250 times. And The Phantom Menace, two times. Will you please welcome James Dyer? <laughs> The second time was in 3D, though, so... That is actually true. That is true. <laughs> we are the Phantom Menace apologists. Or we were, until we saw the Phantom Menace. When we watched it in 3D. Again, in and 3D. And we went to that Chinese restaurant yeah. in Soho, and we sat down, and we kind of looked at each other, and we were just like, it's not very good. Yeah. <laughs> it's terrible. When you have awfulness coming at you in three dimensions, <laughs> it's kind of hard to deny it. Last, but not first, or not second... <laughs> is our art house guru, a man who spent his weekend sifting like Goldilocks through the greatest movies of all time lists on the internet, trying to find the best one that came in at 250 so he could watch it, because he's like that. He's prepared. Uh, do you know on the IMDb, it's Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. 
Too hot. No, didn't like that one. Uh, on our own 301 greatest films of all time list, it's Home Alone. No, didn't like that either. Too cold. But on Sight and Sounds list, it's Three Colors Red. And that was just right. Will you please welcome <laughs> Phil Desemlian! That is all true, isn't it? About the, That's about all true. the number yeah. 250s. Yeah. yeah. Well, when I hit upon the idea of riffing, <laughs> riffing on 250 this afternoon, I went, what the hell do I do for Phil? Ah, yes. Yeah. I'm not saying that was. Sounds list, Scott. I'm not saying that was a long winded intro, but I literally went next door and watched all of In the Mood for Love. <laughs> <laughs> is that what's on at the moment? Yeah. yeah. It's really good. Oh. <laughs> you're, you're my rules. There's plenty of bangly bangs there, if I recall correctly. Anyway. Um, <laughs> there isn't. That's oh, the there point. isn't. Okay. Uh, anyway, so as we're live, we're going to rejig the format slightly. We're going to start off with the discussion of the week's movie news. Just talk amongst yourselves while we do it. It works best that way. Uh, so what's happening? I guess the big story of the weekend was uh, I got some new shoes, but the BAFTAs. <sighs> Helen, Helen is a big fan. What's, why? Why a sigh, Helen? Why? People were happy. Dev Patel won. Everyone was happy for I was, him. I was happy with Dev Patel. I, yeah. was, I was happy with Kubo and the Two Strings. I was very pleased for NPC in the Jungle Book. Mm-hmm. Uh, costume design for Jackie. I had no problems with oh, that. Oh, I know why you're not happy. Do you? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, think, I think you can guess. It's because La La Land didn't win enough. <laughs> That's <laughs> so why you close, wanted to win Chris. more. So close. Bounces. So how many did it win in the end, La La Land? One, two, three, four. Too many. <laughs> I mean, so it won best film it won best director it won best actress uh, and cinematography cinematography music of course and oh, and come music. on even yeah, you five. cannot argue with that oh I can what, what was your pick for music like literally anything else fair it enough. was fine I actually really, I really like the score for Jackie I, would, I, would, I think that should get more yeah but can you sing it while you're, you're walking down the street can you swing around a lamppost I'm, I'm, I'm far to too the, busy singing Hamilton Chris as to you the music know from Jack- so. hey, and there we go <laughs> And there we go. If anyone had <laughs> eight minutes for the, the first mention of Hamilton, uh, I imagine it was probably Marvel's Kevin Feige <laughs> or my wife, who uh, probably had that in the sweepstake <laughs> for the drinking game. Uh, but are you really upset with the Baptists? I mean, do you... What's I, no, your... I, was, I, was, I, was, I was just a little bit... Uh, I, I'm not very invested in it this year because the films I feel should be winning are generally not nominated or, or not likely to win in their categories, and it's, mm. a, bit, it's a bit upsetting, so... It was, it was quite a nice evening. There were some very funny intros, great political speeches. I liked all of that. I just, I don't like La La Land. Do you need to be among friends on Oscar night? Do you need some support? <laughs> it's, I, it's going to end badly for I you. Think I, just, I, think, I think I just need to sleep through it this year and just pretend like it didn't happen, okay? There's been a lot of bad news and I'm just not sure I can take one more piece. That's the beautiful thing about where we are these days, Helen. I mean, you know, if La La Land wins 10 Oscars, you can just deny it ever happened. That, that's a good point, actually. That will give me some Hunt comfort. for the Wilder People sweeps the Oscars. <laughs> yes. Sam Neill won three. Just like just for being Sam Neill. It was amazing. Sam, yeah. Who would argue with that? Yeah. Who, who among us? Right, correct. No one. No one. Jensen Ackles hosted. <laughs> Golly. You should have seen it. Wow. Yeah. That was, that was, yeah. That's exciting. The half-hour masturbate-a-thon. <laughs> I oh, thought it was Chris. a little bit out of keeping no, with the Oscar traditions, no, but... Wind it back. Wind it. Come on. Back in. There we go. There's probably young people in the audience. Are there any young people here? Not anymore. <laughs> Are there any... Yeah. <laughs> now you're a man. <laughs> Unless you're a woman. 
we should point that out. Thanks so much, Chris. Equal opportunities all the yes. time. Yes. Uh, anyway. Cat, what did you think about the uh, the BAFTAs? Um, I don't... Um, well, first of all, I'd like to apologise to anyone who listened to the podcast last week for my inappropriate BAFTAs anecdote, which <laughs> bears no repeating. Um, I, so, I, I don't know. I didn't get, um, find it hard to get excited about the BAFTAs. Do you remember, it happened? Do you, you don't seem aware that it even happened. <laughs> when did it happen? Of course I'm aware it happened. We had a long discussion about how you were going to get there. <laughs> this is true, yeah. yeah. And I, well, I'll tell you how I got there. No, 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 no it's, okay. it's okay. Is it true Cirque de, la, de Soleil were there? Was this a thing? One of them was, anyway. Just on their own? or it came down at, above Luke Evans just to ha- hand him an envelope it's or something. understandable. In answer to your question, <laughs> in answer to your question, I love Manchester by the, uh, by the sea, so I was very happy to see... Kenneth Lonergan get the screen right, yes. the screen play, mm. BAFTA, and Casey Affleck, I know, yeah. divides people. Um, his performance is pretty much unimpeachable. <coughs> um, <laughs> unlike some people. <laughs> um, yeah, it's good. That's good material. I want to say that. Bit of politics. Um, but, but, yeah, um, you know, there, there is not, he's not beloved, I would say, amongst the perhaps some of the Hollywood community. Well, didn't uh, Denzel Washington recently win the Screen Actors Guild Award? Because mm. Casey, uh, Casey Affleck's yeah. been hoovering up awards, which I'm sure is not actually not legal, legal, but he's been he's been winning lots of all the you know the Guild Awards and the different Critic Circles Awards. And, uh, but he couldn't beat Denzel, of course, at the BAFTAs because Denzel wasn't nominated. No, Denzel never is. Never BAFTAs. been nominated for a BAFTA. Now, what do we think about that, assembled people? Mm. Correct. Mm, correct. Harumph. I didn't get a rump from that guy. <laughs> <laughs> you may murmur all you like. Hey, oh, come on, that's amazing. <laughs> oh, what else can I make you do? Chris, no. Stop. Okay. Don't worry, it's pre-watershed. I, I, thought, I think I destroyed the watershed a few minutes ago with Jensen Ackles' masturbatathon. As your lawyer, Chris. <laughs> No. Right. Let's talk about something else. Sure. Let's talk about uh, the Batman. Yes. So Bells. we know that Ben Affleck has stepped away from directing, um, possibly because he didn't want to do two massive jobs at once, possibly because he's still hurting from Live by Night. I don't know. Um, but uh, there are rumours, at least this week, that Matt Reeves has been offered the director's chair on the job. Obviously, Affleck would still be starring as Batman, but he would not be directing. Um, And Reeves, of course, did Cloverfield. He did Let Me In. He did Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. And now is doing War of the Planet of the Apes. War, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Yeah. So... uh, so I always get the the first two mixed up as well. I know. Because Rise... No, wait. Rise and Dawn are very... Very similar concepts. Very interchangeable. Yeah. Absolutely. Would a Um, Dawn not come before a Rise? Or maybe well. the rise would come from... <laughs> oh, God. No, you've just... <laughs> Sometimes I'm even sorry. I have to pass up an open goal. <laughs> He's not the only name in the mix, though, is he? Um, Matt Reeves. Is he there was talk. I believe there was talk of Fede Alvarez as well. Fede Alvarez? Yeah. Interesting. And maybe okay. Ridley Scott's name got mentioned, but he seems certainly like the very favourite. George Miller, favorite. of course. Yeah, seems, yeah but this, the, the report this week was that he's actually been offered the job. Yeah. So presumably he is now the front runner. Otherwise, they've made a horrible mistake. <laughs> yeah, he might just look at the situation at DC and think, I don't want yeah. any part of that. But he's in uh, early talks, apparently, according to Variety. And of course, that could mean anything. That could mean that Warner Brothers are going, go on. And he's going, no. Nah. 
And they're going, go, go on. Nah. Yeah, will you, yeah. will you, will you, will and they, Yeah. <laughs> and they're just slowly pushing an ever larger amount of gold coins towards him. Which is, I imagine, how negotiations happen in Hollywood. <laughs> You've been watching John Wick 2 again, haven't you? I have been watching John Wick Chapter 2, yes. Yes, I have. We'll, we'll talk about that later on, Helen. Sorry, yes. This yeah, is hot. I'll do the segues. This is a good <laughs> thing. We're happy. This, we're pleased. I mean... About, about Matt Reeves? Yeah. At least he's done stuff on this scale, which is not always the case with people who are offered yeah. this bigger film. And I think, actually, it's probably a, a good thing that they have that experience. Going into it, you want somebody who actually has a strong take on the story and the world and everything else. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's yeah. a good thing. Absolutely. And there's still Ben Affleck as the Batman. Mm. I believe that's what his name is. Um, and that's going to be interesting because obviously he was going to direct it. So you should hope he's not going to backseat direct it. <laughs> I wouldn't put that camera there. <laughs> I wouldn't ask me to deliver a line like that. Mm. Sorry, guys. Also, but, uh, if he's all bulked up to play Batman and he stands behind <laughs> you saying that, it's, it's, it's going to have an effect, isn't yeah. it? While he's munching on a carrot stick. I think just protein. I think that's all the chicken. Sinister. You can't crunch a chicken. Well, you can actually. With the bones, the oh, bones okay, of a right, chicken. Yeah. Anywho. Isn't the sex move? I don't. I don't. <laughs> Honey, prepare yourself. I'm going to crunch the chicken. <laughs> all right. Your wife is denying all knowledge right now. You know. My wife is looking for a lawyer. Hey, do you know one, Helen? <laughs> She survived Valentine's Day, though. <laughs> Barely. <laughs> that was dark. <laughs> I think it's best if I put this microphone down for a second and you talk about something else. Okay. Um, how about Mulan? Ooh, I like that. How yeah. Um, so they're making a live-action everything over at Disney nowadays, and they have decided to make a live-action Mulan, and it will now be directed by Nikki Caro, of course, director of The Amazing Whale Rider. Um, so that's a pretty that's a pretty solid choice, I think. But that's Ang really. Lee was attached to this at one point, wasn't he? Uh, Ang Lee was at least approached, is what I'm reading off my hmm. card. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, uh, yeah, so... We're, They've had a sort of a short list of female directors. Patty Jenkins, Michelle McLaren, uh, and Leslie Linker Glasser were both all on it. And Caro is um, depressingly becoming only the second woman to ever direct a Disney film, uh, a Disney blockbuster, essentially, something over $100 million, after Ava DuVernay, who's A Wrinkle in Time, is out in 2018. Ah, of course. That's why she wasn't at the BAFTAs. Indeed. She was filming in New Zealand. Um, So, uh, yeah, this it's still a couple of years away, but that has got to be good news. Um, And we'll see her next film later this year, The Zookeeper's Wife, which is out in May. This has the whiff of your next casting controversy. Lingering over it. That's where it kind of started, hasn't it? Yeah. Wasn't it the early, the the Spectre script of this? Right. There were, were, shall we say, dominant Western characters written in the storyline. They cast Matt Damon as as the princess. (laughs) So (laughs) it it was unconventional, I'll go on you. Um, So, yeah, it's a question for how they, you know, manoeuvre around that because there's been quite a lot of bad publicity around certain yeah. casting. It's not over yet, obviously, with, with Ghost in the Shell and Scarlett Johansson. Absolutely. I, th- I think they have to like take that head on and not cast anyone who isn't, and I'm going to be radical here, not cast anyone who isn't Chinese, at least ethnically speaking. Crazy talk. I, I know. I, I, I genuinely think that might be the solution to the whitewashing dilemma, though, and I think it's really worth a try. <laughs> nah. <laughs> you think? 
I just, You're a maverick. I am. I am. Radical. Ahead mm. of your time. Uh, so this brings the number of Disney live-action remakes of their animated classics to, what, 47 now? What, what think, are we on? I think a little bit higher. I think we're at 100, 176. <laughs> <laughs> so Tim Burton's about to start Dumbo. Yes. Which is interesting. Guy Ritchie is about to do Aladdin. But isn't that... <laughs> I see you're ahead of me on this one. Um, so that's a, that's a prequel, right? That's a prequel to Aladdin. Okay. Yeah, okay. okay. So that's an interesting choice of director, I would say. And what else? Well, We've got you know, Beauty and the Beast coming out soon. Beauty and the Beast, yeah. I mean, Aladdin makes sense because he's a, he's, a, he's a lad on the streets, isn't he? He's a little bit of a ge- geezer. So, Guy Ritchie, who are you going to have? Jason Sayum is... <laughs> Aladdin. <laughs> Aladdin what? <laughs> what am I meant to be in? <laughs> Mate, just just rub that can of red stripe three times. <laughs> <laughs> ah, another successful oh. news story. Um, <laughs> Dandy Newton's joined Han Solo. The yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to call it Han Solo Origins. That's not what it's called, <laughs> is it? I just it love the dramatic pause. It doesn't have a name yet. It doesn't have a name. No. Can we not call it that? Anyone ever again? I, well, which one? Han Solo Origins? Han Solo Origins, yeah. Yeah. No, let's not do that. But what was the, what was the story? Danny Newton has joined. Okay. Um, obviously last seen in, in Westworld and having a bit of a, a renaissance. Oh. Um, and uh, we don't know anything about what she's playing in it, except... No, hang on, that was last week's story. This is hard-hitting. <laughs> yeah. We know Straight literally nothing Phoebe, about Phoebe, Phoebe Waller-Bridge is playing the CG character. We don't know anything about what uh, yeah. Fandy Newton no. is playing at all. Nothing. No. Nothing is he here. No. But are we pleased about it? Does that sound like good casting? Yes, I guess I, guess I think this is, this is good. This is good, isn't it? Who, who's excited about the Han Solo movie? Hands up. Or a whoop. Or a whoopy hands up, yeah. Uh, and who wasn't excited when they first heard the concept? Okay. And you, most of you have turned around on that now because the casting is solid and Lord and Miller are on board and everyone seems happy. Yeah. Yeah? I'm just concerned that Harrison Ford might try and land a plane on the set. <laughs> this could be awkward. They're, they're going to have to set up a makeshift runway nearby and just keep it lit at all times. <laughs> so we always have somewhere to go. Absolutely. Poor old Harrison Ford. So today he landed a plane on the wrong one, runway at a on a taxiway, not even a runway. On a taxiway. Yeah. Oh, go blimey, governor! I was a <laughs> taxi driver. Jason back. It's a taxi driver reacting no. to Harrison Ford no. flying a plane over his head. That's good. No, no, don't encourage yeah. him. That's no. good. <laughs> anyway, I do have an origin story. Robin Hood origins. Yes. Uh, Tim Minchin has just signed up for this one. Sorry, um, sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Robin Hood Tim Minchin. Yeah. yeah. Tim Minchin has joined up. He's playing Fry Tuck. So, <laughs> not This is actually so weird about this. It's a, it gets weirder. It's great. Yeah. I, earlier stuff. I'd written down a list of stories we might discuss, and that wasn't on there because I hadn't <laughs> seen it. Yeah, no, Tim Minchin. Now, if you, if, does everyone know who he is? Possibly not. Okay, you, well, I'm just going to say it for the people at home anyway. Um, he, uh, he wrote uh, Matilda, the brilliant musical in the West that's been in the West End for years. He wrote Chris's favourite musical of last year and my second favourite musical of last year, Groundhog Day. <laughs> what was it your was first? It was close, though. It was really close. What was your first? Oh, Hamilton. Did Hamilton. I Hamilton. Um, of course. And, uh, and, you know, so he's a, he's a musical powerhouse. He's one of the funniest men ever to play a piano. And, uh, Along with Richard Stilgo. 
fair is fair. Okay. And uh, so now he'll be playing for Ironshark. Taryn Edgerton will be Robin Hood. Um, ben Mendelsohn, uh, which, making Emma Thrower extremely happy, will be the Sheriff of Nottingham. Um, and uh, the cast also includes Jamie Foxx's Little John. Jamie Dornan as Will Scarlet and Eve Hewson as Maid Marian. Eve Hewson, of course, Bono's daughter, right? She was in The Nick. I did not know that. Yes. Okay, good. Correct. Um, and Ben Mendelsohn is, is the bad guy, the big bad guy. Yeah. Um, hopefully they've, they've, they've uh, released a synopsis. It says, returning to Sherwood Forest, Robin Hood finds it rife with corruption and evil. He forms a band of outlaws <laughs> and they take matters into their own hands. No surprises so far. Leading a revolt against the corrupt English crown. That's Wait. literally the story of Robin Hood that everyone knows. Yeah. Why, why don't you just say you but guys so know what timely. happens? I mean, that could be happening right now. Yeah, yeah. The corrupt English crown. Queen Elizabeth always up to no good. Always As your lawyer, plotting. Chris. She's treasonous talk, Chris. As your lawyer. She's always up to something, isn't she? She's got that sort of look in her face. Who yeah, wants Chris. to join Chris's band of outlaws? Put your hands the pay is terrible, but sexual yeah. innuendo is rife. Yeah. <laughs> In the forest. There's, it's, there's, there's, it's not really a forest, per se, but if you come to Finsby Park tonight at 11 p.m., there's a, a number of trees that we can just hang out in, wear some tights, maybe fight some evil, but we'll see how it goes. Men, On you go. <laughs> Speaking of outlaws... Ed- Edward James Olmos has signed on for the Sons of Anarchy spin-off series, which is very exciting. Does everyone know about this? No. Sounds more. Mayans, Mayans MC, if anyone watches. Who watched Sons of Anarchy? There's at least four people there. Anyway, it's really good. This is Kurt Sutter's TV show, which is an FX show uh, about motorcycle gang. Obviously famous, had uh, Ron Perlman and Charlie Hunnam in it. Uh, and the spin-off, which is their rival gang, the Mayans, uh, will now star Edward James Olmos as the father of the lead character, who is a prospect or sort of newbie biker gang member person so that's pretty cool because he's awesome in everything yes that is true I think we can all agree that so yeah that's the thing that's happening and you're a massive fan of Sons of Anarchy I aren't do you love Jimbo. Sons of Anarchy yes. and he's a massive fan of Battlestar Galactica so this is basically it's, it's, it all, all comes together it if they can together. cast Richard Schiff or someone oh. else from the West Wing James will <laughs> faint with delight I will Richard Schiff was in fact on this week's episode of the West Wing Weekly Podcast so that was very wow. exciting there we go we have a listener. <laughs> Other um, podcasts are available. Yes. I was going to mention um, the Tandy Newton thing. Do you think she's the bad guy in Han Solo? Phil's not listening. What's the question? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think Tandy she's Newton. the bad guy. I don't know. Okay. I'm just wondering yes, because, you know, we haven't had a villain mm, announced yet. True. So it could be her. That'd true. be interesting. That'd be cool, actually. Yeah. I'd, be, I'd be down for that. That'd Isn't Lando the villain? Kind Who? Of. Lando? Yeah. Why would Lando be the villain? Well, you know. Have you seen Star Wars? <laughs> <laughs> Donald, Donald Glover could never be the villain. Don't be Has Andy Newton played a villain since the Chronicles of Riddick? Uh, well, no, when you do it that well. <laughs> you don't so want to well do it again. So inspired Jamie Dornan's character in Fifty Shades Darker. Is this tr- is this, so this is true, because obviously I haven't seen it. Because yeah, Judy no Dench will let me is in the Chronicles of Riddick. Yeah. Yes. Should we say that again? Judy Dench... <laughs> is in the Chronicles of Riddick. I could do this game as well. Carl Urban <laughs> is in the Chronicles of Riddick. Now your turn, Helen. Finn Diesel. Finn. Oh, that's a little easy. This is true. <laughs> you, took, you took all the good ones. Reaching. Okay. Oh, Colin yeah. Fiore is in the Chronicles of Riddick. Uh, yeah, I don't know how to pronounce his name either. <laughs> that guy is in the Chronicles of Riddick. Uh, yeah, so is this true? So that, Who's seen Fifty Shades Darker? 
here. And is willing to admit to it publicly. And is willing to admit to it. Amazing. Sorry, you can tell me I'm a doctor. So, have you genuinely no one in this room has seen Fifty Shades Darker? Yes. Oh, one, two, two people. Two people. Two courageous people. Is there a Chronicles of Riddick poster in Christian Grey's? In, in his, his childhood bedroom. bedroom, he has a Chronicles of Riddick poster. Oh, well, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, I thought it was something he used as a. <laughs> well, like rolled up or something. Like no, <laughs> no. Podcast is going to be rated R. This is. Can we move on to the story about the goat testicles? Yeah. Absolutely. Just the same thing. We, Can we do what? that? You're right. We should. Yeah, we should. Safer ground. <laughs> so this is Robert Downey Jr., <laughs> who has taken a role in Richard Linklater's film, which is based on the Man of the People uh, episode of the Reply All podcast, which is about John Brinkley, who is a historical character who was not a doctor, but fed people goat testicles. As he was a, a charlatan. You, you think? Like Tim Burgess. Do you think? <laughs> it, sorry, he uh, wasn't feeding them. He no, you're right. He was actually transplanting them into people. Uh, this was uh, as a cure for uh, for erectile dysfunction, and then apparently a cure for all all that ails you after a while. Sore throat, go bollocks. <laughs> Flu, something for that. Take two of these before bedtime and a glass of water. Um, yeah, also, also, and this is actually true, this guy ran for office twice and was nearly elected governor of Arkansas, of, no, was it, of Kansas, 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 of Kansas, overqualified. which I think you could all agree is not really that surprising. Um, yeah, true, true story. Wow. Okay. Goat bollocks. So this is uh, RDJ. RDJ is going to play this guy? Yes. You think, we think it's going to be the, uh, this guy and not the guy who takes him down. There's a, because in real life, there was a guy who vowed to take this bloke down. After having been given goat bollocks. Really? Pres- presumably. If I someone mean, gave would. me good bollocks, I'd you be would. furious. Yeah. Mm. Dr. Morris Fishbein, I believe, the editor of the American Medical Association. Okay. He, he's, he's the villain of this piece. No, no, no. He's the, he's the good guy. Well, if, if, if you well, know, Bollocks was the, yeah. the hero. It depends how into goat bollocks you are. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's the guy that's trying to stop him peddling yeah. his... You think the hero... Peddling bollocks. Yeah. Peddling his bollocks. Yeah. It does the hero matter. of the movie. The goats movie. are probably joining on that side as well. So this is Downey Jr., and not being Tony Stark. He's obviously filming Avengers Infinity War right now, which I'm very, very happy about. So is Helen. Uh, but we're not going we're not gonna to squeeze about gonna, it. We're we're not. <laughs> oh my God, it's going to be so amazing, you guys. Um, uh, so, but this is interesting because yeah, he's been playing Tony Stark for 10 years or so, and he's maybe in that time done a couple of other movies, like most recently The, the Judge, which didn't quite garner the awards attention that he was clearly hoping for. Because it was really boring. That's partially one of the reasons why. Um, but maybe this might get him the, the, the acting accolades that he Do you think that goat wants? bollocks are the way to go if you want to win an Oscar? I don't think the movie is going to dwell on the goat bollocks. I know that we have here, uh, but I don't think that it will, you know, it's you not going to be... You think they're maybe on a higher level than we are? Yeah. I mean, it's I called mean, Man of hope. the People. It's not called Man of the People, colon, goat bollocks. <laughs> I mean, I think technically it's still untitled, so okay. we'll see. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe they're, if you're listening, if you're hope. listening, Richard Linklater, and I know you are, change the name of your film to Goat Bollocks. Uh, there's tons of other stuff to talk about, but we should probably get onto movie reviews at some oh, point. Okay, but sure. uh, I would just say uh, I was excited. I may be the only one to see that Kevin Smith is going to make another Giant Silent Bob movie. Uh, it's called Giant Silent Bob Reboot. Uh, 
Uh, and I, I love the last chance Isle of Bob film. I think it's really, really daft and really, really funny. And if uh, Kevin Smith, who's been making some DCTV re- recently, uh, can get back to where he was rather than yoga hosers, which is not good, and Tusk, which is slightly less ungood. Um, did that make sense? No. no anyway, really. uh, then hopefully it'll be good. It'll yeah. be it'll be interesting to see how that goes. And um, yeah. Can I very quickly mention that Taika Waititi, who you may have heard me mention I like Hunt for the Wilder People, um, is planning to co-direct a stop-motion movie called Bubbles about Michael Jackson's pet chimp. Is this, is this a real thing? This is a real thing. Not this made is, this I have not made this okay. up. Um, uh, which is just delightful on so many levels. It apparently chronicles the ape's friendship with the King of Pop after Jackson adopted him from a research facility and gave him a home at Neverland. Um... And he lived with Megastar until he became a bit too aggressive. That, that's Bubbles became aggressive, not, <laughs> not Jacko. And he now lives in a private sanctuary in Florida. So it's like it's like Rise of the Planet of the Apes, but hopefully with a happier ending that doesn't see us all killed. So we we um, can hope. Yeah. So apparently, uh, YTD says he's a huge Michael Jackson fan. So the main thing for me is to make sure it's respectful of him and his legacy. It, but it's not a biopic. It's just telling a story that blends fact and fantasy about an animal trying to make sense of the world. Oh, that's exciting. That uh, is awesome. Of course, next up for him is, um, what's it called? Thor? Thor Ragnarok? But again, we're not going to bang on about that. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be, it's going to be, the Hulk's going to come in and it's going to, and then Doctor Strange, he's going to be, uh, it's going to be so much fun. Um, right. Jimbo, Phil Cat, do you have anything else you want to talk about? Um, Ted Levine. Ted Levine. Ted Levine is joining uh, Jurassic World 2 or Jurassic Park 5, 6. <laughs> Nick, which was it? 5? We're going to say 5. Oh, I should mention Jurassic as well Park that we have World in 2. our ranks <laughs> the star of Jurassic World, <laughs> Nick Dissemblian as Edmund, everybody. <laughs> Funnily enough, doing almost exactly what he does in the film. Yeah. Sitting down and applauding like an idiot. <laughs> there we go. Right. Why couldn't they just cut him out? He wasn't integral to the plot in any way, shape, or form. I mean, honestly. What, are you kidding? He gave it the texture that it needed. Yeah, he's a hack. Oh, you're a hack. <laughs> anyway. Uh, hello, Nick. He's been replaced by Ted Levine in the sequel. <laughs> yeah, Ted Levine, she's got to do it, that. It puts the raptor in the basket. <laughs> or else it gets the hose again. I hope he tucks his tiger between his legs. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> every, every movie he does. Yeah. This is the thing I do. <laughs> okay, Ted. Okay. Make sure the camera's not running. We got that, Ted. It's fine. Um, Phil, anything else? Anything, Phil. Anything else? Anything. Um, <laughs> I'm quite excited about Triple Frontier which was going to be a Catherine Bigelow film written by Mark Boll, her trip, um, Zero Dark Thirty uh, screenwriter um, it's now got JC Chandler attached and Mahershala Mahershala Ali has joined it um, I think he's in most films at the moment which is a he's good thing because he's great mm. um, he's co-starring with Tom Hardy and Channing Tatum um, it's been around the blocks this one a bit but it sounds pretty exciting it's set on the border between uh, Paraguay Argentina and Brazil and involves men with guns and drugs and stuff like that I think it's going to be good yeah, I think JC Chandler is a really interesting director and uh, it's a good cast. So yeah, yeah I'm in, I'm in favour. I'm all on board. I'm all all of me is on board for that one. You got one uh, more thing fresh in today. Okay. Who yeah. likes Benedict Cumberbatch here? What, what levels of Cumber? 
Okay. All right. Middling. Wow. That was, yeah. That was quite. Yeah. Anyway, he's he's uh, co he's executive producing and starring in an adaptation of Ian McEwan's The Child in Time, which is one of his older novels. Very good one. Um, that joins On Chesil Beach and the Children Act as McEwan properties that are being developed. This is a 90-minute BBC drama. Um, it's a great book. Check it out. Right. So that could be good. And you see the news just before we came out here as well that Richard Curtis and some of the, the cast of Love Actually are going to uh, do a revisit the film in some way mm. for Red Nose Day. And they're calling it Red Nose Day, actually, which is, yeah. On the nose. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bad. Bad. On that note. <laughs> what a note. Do you think Liam Neeson's character has learned to kill people in the years in between? <laughs> uh, time now to dissect the week's big releases at that there multiplex. Uh, we're going to start with the little film that became a big noise in this year's Oscars race, uh, picking up eight nominations in total, I believe. I didn't Google it before I came out, so I'm just completely out on the limb with that one. Uh, it is, of course, Moonlight, the movie by Barry Jenkins, which tells the story of a young boy, Chiron, as he navigates life, not just as a young black man in America, but as a young black man struggling with his sexuality. Phil Cat, Yes. I'm going to start with you in this um, Yeah. Well, it's funny because this sort of Oscar season started with a lot of buzz around one story about sort of African-American identity, uh, Nate Parker's Birth of a Nation, and kind of seems to have ended up uh, with another one, which... Um, for my money, is a much better film, um, yeah. Moonlight. Um, we don't need to go into the reasons why the first one didn't really end up anywhere near awards season. But this one is an absolute, for me, a beautiful piece of filmmaking, something unlike anything I've seen for a while. Um, it's, as Chris says, it's about this young kid. Um, you see him in three stages of his life. Chiron, um, he's played by Alex Hibbert. Ashton Sanders is a teenager and Travante Rhodes. Um, the first part of the movie, without getting into too much of the sort of the detail of his development and his growth um, is where Mahershala Ali, obviously Oscar nominated for his role, Best Supporting, um, kind of takes him under his wing. Uh, He's a crack dealer, um, but he obviously sees something in this kid that he suddenly kind of connects with. Um, And it's clearly kind of a two-way relationship. It's not just him being a mentor for the sake of it. He clearly gets something of his own humanity back from this relationship. Um, I love this first section. Um, As I say, I don't want to talk about the film beyond that because you should discover it for yourselves. But um, it's lovely to see a character like Mahershala Ali's character in this instance or Naomi Harris. Just they're very human, very multidimensional. He's, you know, a bad guy, obviously, in, in terms of his place in society but he's doing kind things for this young kid um the acting is beautiful throughout and barry jenkins who's not a director i'm familiar with particularly from his previous work i think this is his second feature he's done shorts as well um brings an amazing kind of uh visual aesthetic to it it's really it's a gentle film um but very beautiful to behold it kind of reminded me of, if you imagine terence malick making an episode of the wire at yeah. times it, yeah. feels, <laughs> it feels a bit like that um janelle Monet plays uh um Mahashala ali's uh, partner she's great too she's i think we're going to talk about her yeah, again in a minute um it's set obviously if you well not obviously you may not know but it's set in florida um and you know if you were being crass you could say it's kind of boyhood meets boys in the hood um it's not really that it's very much its own thing we've given it five stars i'm not sure it's going to win best picture but i think it would be a worthy winner yeah um and you know i guess i guess um thanks helen (laughs) i guess barry jenkins didn't set out to make it's one of those films that kind of you you make and it just kind of 
hits a current which carries it into the zeitgeist and it's a sort of arrived at a really interesting time obviously in American history and um, it says something really profound for me it reminded me a bit of uh, of a film called Killer of Sheep I don't know if anyone here has seen that apart from Ian Freer obviously in the front row um, <laughs> Charles Burnett's film from 1978 it just it's a really I mean that's not it's not my experience of life I don't really have that kind of first hand experience of what this film's about but I feel kind of like I understand it better um, and it's a really humane and beautiful film so I'd fully recommend it five stars absolutely it's absolutely beautiful as well yeah. like the saturated it's the most stunning film and also we, sh- we should give a shout out to the, the three actors who play mm. uh, the lead Alex Hibbert Ashton Sanders and Durante Rhodes who are astonishing and this is a story that isn't ever told in cinema when's the last time you saw an African American gay man in a film with a major role it just it, it, those stories are not told and they should be and it's it's I don't want to say it's important because that makes it sound worthy and boring and not worth, you know, and kind of like a bit of a taking your medicine. And it isn't. It's a beautiful, beautiful film as well. But it's, yeah, it's stunning. Love it. Should win over La La Land. Let's <laughs> <laughs> not going to. I know. <laughs> or maybe it will. Who knows? It could. It could. You never know. I guess, you know, in terms of the sort of the gay romance, people obviously talk about Broadband Mountain, but it seems like there's hopefully be more of these sorts of stories told. Um, Call Me By Your Name is a film that's got great reviews out of Sundance, which I think is already being tipped for Oscars next year um, with Army Hammer. And, and um, yeah, it should be nice that you don't really differentiate between a gay romance and, 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 That's and true, a heterosexual it's romance. The, it's the intersectionality as well, yeah, which we don't but, see. But yeah, exactly. But I mean, it's just a it's just a lovely piece of storytelling that's got you know a great sort of a really really impressive sort of first breakthrough film for Barry Jenkins. Yeah. Mm. It's interesting. Uh, Mahershala Ali is uh, not in the movie that much, and he's very very good indeed. Um, and obviously, he's been nominated for Best Supporting Actor Oscar, and he's I think the front runner to win that. But the rest of the performances are amazing. Naomi Harris is Paula, who's uh, Chiron's mother, and she is just beginning to become addicted to crack at the beginning of the movie. And the way the movie obviously moves throughout Chiron's life as well, uh, through his nickname. So he's little at the beginning, and then he's he's Chiron in the middle as he's a teenager, and then at the end he's he's when he's out of juvie and out of prison, and he's he's a hardened criminal, I guess, uh, by that point. Uh, his nickname is Black. And Paula moves through these these timelines in a really interesting and unexpected way. And Naomi Harris is fantastic in it. Uh, it's really, really great. But yeah, I, I thought the, um, the probably the first and the third segments worked best for me. I think Trevante Rhodes is fantastic in this movie. The third section um, won't go into it too much, but has a, a, a sort of aching heartbroken quality at its at its centre which I thought was really really lovely um, and it's a really tender really sensitively observed movie as well it is yeah it is absolutely fantastic so five stars for Moonlight if you can get yourself to a cinema maybe go and see that uh, so five stars then for Moonlight um, and then up next in this week's unexpected Mahershala Ali Janelle Monet double bill <laughs> This is going to be a, a cracking double bill in years to come. Is Hidden Figures, which is the true story of three African American female mathematicians who beat down the doors of bigotry uh, to prove invaluable to NASA in the space race in the 19, uh, early 1960s. Uh, Hell's Bells. Yeah, so this is uh, set in 1962 uh, when NASA was still doing a lot of its calculations by hand um, and yet was trying to send a man into space with the goal, obviously, as Kennedy said, of getting to the moon by the end of the decade. Um, And crucial in the the effort to 
do all this calculation. They obviously needed talented ma mathematicians and they got nice cheap ones by hiring African-American women who they probably paid a lot less than they would have paid uh, similarly educated white men. So we're kind of, uh, we focus in on three of them. Um, Taraji P. Henson's Catherine is the, is the main heroine, I guess, of the tale. Um, she has, she's a widow bringing up three kids and is, uh, and is struggling at work to try and, you know, keep her head above water to, to, to just get the kind of respect that, that her talent deserves and also to get them to listen to what she's doing to make sure that this mission goes off successfully, which is what they're all working towards. Um, Dorothy is Octavia Spencer. She's the kind of, um, she's not formally, but she's kind of the supervisor of, of uh, the group of these women. Um, and she is trying to, first of all, be recognised as supervisor and then also ensure that they survive the move to computers, which are just beginning to come in. And then Mary Janelle Monet is just the, super coolest one of the three of them and is just amazing. Um, she's kind of, but she is, she's kind of the cool friend to yeah. the other two, really. She doesn't yeah. have a, so much of an arc. Oh, no, except she, that she tries to go to um, qualify independently. Yeah. Well, she, doesn't, she doesn't impact upon the plot the way that, yeah, that the other two, the other two characters yeah. do. But, um, but yeah. she's fantastic. I mean, as pop stars turned actresses go, she's right up there. She's really, really stunning. Um, anyway, so it's basically the story of overcoming institutionalized prejudice at NASA. Um, so for example, uh, Catherine, when she's called to work in the main sort of bay with all of the the top engineers and mathematicians. Um, that means that if she ever wants to go to the toilet, she has to run the entire way across the campus, about half a mile or something, to get to the ladies' loo that coloured women are allowed to use. So it's this kind of just obnoxious prejudice that she has to deal with. And meanwhile, everyone's wondering, well, why does it take her half an hour to go to the loo? Well, it's because you won't let her use anywhere in the building. So all of these kind of systemic injustices that they kind of have to overcome just to be um, equal to everyone else. Um, so in terms of its story, in terms of its casting, in terms of its focus, this is pretty unimpeachable. I think in terms of its storytelling and the way it's directed, it's it's kind of solid. It feels like a solid biopic that of a type that you've seen a lot of times before. It's uh, Theodore Melfi directing it. He's a decent director. But this feels like the kind of film that would have been nominated for and winning Oscars in the 90s. It's It's a mm. little bit sort of methodical in its in its kind of approach. Did you think yeah. it was better or worse than The Help? Oh, it's better than The Help. It's a lot less obnoxious than The Help. Um, but, it's, uh, but it does have a little bit of that kind of plodding nature to but it. But it's fun, though, because, I mean, the subject matter makes it sound quite worthy and stodgy, but it isn't. You oh, know, it, it is really long. fun, yeah. It's very conventional. You know, there's lots of sort of plinky-plonky music when yeah. she's doing stuff on the blackboard with sums and stuff and there's and, lots and of lovely the, montages of her jogging to the toilet you know yeah. it's quite funny it's and the not, friendship you know. between the three of them is yeah. great and there's a really cute kind of flirtation going on with Mahershala Ali mm -hmm. and it's yeah it is no that's right that, I don't mean it's stodgy I just mean the filmmaking is kind of just solid and by the mm. numbers yeah there's nothing hugely inspirational or out of the ordinary about this movie but I had a real blast with it it's really uplifting oh, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, mm. it's inspirational in its subject matter yeah. but not in its you can, you can it's done gangbusters in the States and you can see why because it's really crowd pleasing and you can see mm. why people might go back I mean it's one of those movies I, yeah I'd be quite happy to watch it again right now and it's it's, it's surprisingly moving and uh, uh, and eye opening in many ways and uh, the performances are solid all the way through and again it's one of those movies where I'm a little bit surprised that there's only really talk about one actress or even one actor from the movie because Kevin Costner is again solid in this film as well um, getting an Oscar nomination that's Octavia Spencer who's very very good in the film 
Uh, but I think playing notes that we've seen her play before. In the same way that Jeff Bridges was nominated for Hell or High Water, but for essentially doing performances that we've seen from him before. And Janelle Monet is really new and fresh and surprising and really likable, and I thought maybe she would have got something for this. And, and Costner is playing one of those characters that he, I think only Kevin Costner can play. Someone who is an absolute straight arrow, looks you straight in the eye, straight down the middle, very straight. Um, straight haircut, straight tie, straight everything. And he's the sort of guy who can say <laughs> lines like, at NASA, we all pee the same color and get away with it. <laughs> I tried that today at a meeting. It was less It effective. doesn't work, yeah. yeah. Admittedly, I probably shouldn't have actually been pissing, but... We didn't need the proof. <laughs> no, true. But Costner is so good in this, and uh, I'm surprised he didn't get a little bit of traction either either in terms of a uh, supporting actor for this. And also, we should mention the likes of uh, Kirsten Dunst, who's the closest thing that the film has to being a, a hissable villain, and uh, and Jim Parsons, yeah. uh, who's playing Dr. Sheldon Cooper in this movie. You might not be surprised to know, but if Dr. Sheldon Cooper were a real dick. Yeah. Um, and uh, he has a, an interesting relationship with Catherine Goebel slash Johnson uh, as the movie progresses. But this is, uh, at, the, at its heart, I think on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, I railed against uh, biopics that end with real-life footage or pictures of the actual people in, involved in the movie. Because uh, I feel it's a bit manipulative. And this movie does it as well. Mm. But when you set it against the achievements of Catherine Johnson in particular, who's still alive at the age of 97... It is, it is quite astonishing and it is quite moving. Uh, so it's a, it's a good old movie. Right, uh, next up is a film about the greatest restaurant in the world. No, not No Ma in Copenhagen in Denmark, but the McDonald's at the end of Charing Cross. No. No, no. Well, oh, sort no, of. It's, no, it's kind sort of. of, of yeah. no, it's, it's the founder. It's the founder, which is a movie uh, about how McDonald's was created. And amazingly, and I think this is a bit of a, a missed opportunity here, it's not directed by Neil Berger. I mean... <laughs> What was going on there? That's the first person you get, isn't it? Along with the Hamburglar and, and Kevin Bapp. Um, I, th- I, th- I think you're thinking of Mayor McCheese. <laughs> Mayor McCheese. Just saying. Uh, it is directed by John Lee Hancock. It stars Michael Keaton as Ray Kroc, the man who pushed the golden arches over the top. Uh, and as you can tell from my Michael Keaton t-shirt... I'm wearing here, very stylish. I'm a huge Michael Keaton fan. In fact, I'm something of a completist, so naturally, I haven't seen this. Um, but I do know two people I have, uh, Helen and James. Yeah. Yeah. So, is the founder a tasty treat, or is it a crock of shit? <laughs> I see you did that. This does indeed star Michael Keaton as Ronald McDonald, who's <laughs> a low-level street thug until he falls into a va- the Axis chemical plant no. and becomes... No. Come on. Um, no, this is Michael Keane as Ray Kroc, who was not the founder of McDonald's. Um, that honour belongs to two brothers, not surprisingly called McDonald, uh, played by Nick Offerman and John Carroll Lynch. In this case, they were uh, Dick and Mac McDonald, respectively. Um, but Ray Kroc was a travelling salesman. He would go around all of these kind of diners as he drove around America trying to sell his milkshake machines. And he was amazed one day when somebody called up and said, we actually need eight of your machines. And he thought, why would they need, like, I can't sell one. Why does this, why does this restaurant want eight? So he went out to California to see what they were, they were cooking up and discovered this revolutionary system um, to basically the McDonald's system where all the food is ready and they just hand you your order. Um, and he instantly saw profit. 
uh, and he decided, right, this has That's got to be. That's a great sequence, though, isn't it? It you know, is When amazing. he comes in and he, he goes up to the window and they he orders his book and they hand it to him and he goes, no, no, no I just ordered. And he just sort of pushes it back as if said, this is someone else's order. And yeah. he can't get his head around the idea that the food is fast. It's right there. Yeah. So uh, so he insists that they've got to franchise this. He, he has to get involved. This is a goldmine waiting to happen. Now, the McDonald's are actually quite reluctant because Mac had heart trouble. I think he has diabetes. They tried to franchise before. It was too stressful. They don't want to compromise on quality. You know, they're really, really concerned. And he's like, no, it's got to happen. I will make this happen. He's, he's absolutely passionate about it. He becomes completely driven. They finally agree under stringent conditions and he sets about doing this. And after, I mean, there's, there's, it's an all, uh, very entertaining actually as he tries to set up these franchisees. He tries to sell it at his local sort of uh, country club. Um, he then tries to maintain standards on everybody as they start, you know, uh, setting up these restaurants. Um, but that's not enough. And it's never enough. And he keeps pushing and pushing and pushing to get bigger and bigger and bigger, to cut on costs, to make more money, to spread McDonald's wider and wider across the country. And of course, that puts him into conflict with the McDonald's brothers who have no interest in that. There's a brilliant line, I think it's Nick Offerman's, uh, where he says, you know, we're not interested in crass commercialism. This is McDonald's. <laughs> So, so that's what gets lost, basically, in the course of this film. Now, I have to say, I saw this the night after the American election, which was a super bad time to watch a film about an unscrupulous capitalist getting ahead. Um, but I, I tell you what, it, it has become far more timely than this really should be. And, and as a sort of a, a little glimpse into our world right now, it's, it's perhaps more relevant and more powerful than it would have been otherwise. Mm. No, it's, it's a fascinating story, actually. And, but to my I mean, Keaton's very, very good in it, but he's absolutely loathsome as Croc. I mean, he's, yeah. he's the worst man. Uh, you know, from he starts off introducing, you know, powdered milkshakes, and then it just gets worse and worse. And he comes up with schemes to kind of fuck the guys over and essentially steal McDonald's out from under them. Uh, but his Offerman, for me, was the star of this, because oh, there are yeah. these fantastic sequences where he's calling back with this, um, he's calling back to the McDonald's head office to say, I've come up with this brilliant idea to make more money with this fantastic we're going to powder the milkshakes we're going to do this and he's just sitting there with his eyes closed just going <laughs> and having to say no no we're not going to do that because he's very hands-on blue collar owner yeah. of this business a family business and bit by bit it goes from being this wholesome family restaurant to this giant corporate behemoth soulless monster that we know and love <laughs> yeah it, it is really it's a tragedy for the for the McDonald brothers and to be honest it's kind of a tragedy for Ray Kroc as well yeah. because um, you know we, when we meet him he's married for many many years to his wife Ethel played by Laura Lord Dern in. and she is looking forward to a quiet retirement and just as she is she's the one talking to him and saying you know come on time to stop travelling the road now time to settle on and we've got enough money let's just enjoy our lives and then he comes up with McDonald's, you know. So it's um, it's kind of a tragedy from that point of view as well. But he doesn't, he never sees it that way. He never has the, he never has the insight, I think. So, um, I mean, again, it's not a revolutionary film in the way it's made. Mm. It's not a, a particularly always coherent film, I think, because it, it has such a large story to tell. Yeah. Um, so we give it three stars. Three but stars. it really is relevant right now. Okay. Well, well, why um, it was held as a well, all films are held when they come out in September, October, November mm. as a, a a potential part of the Oscar race, yeah. and obviously didn't materialize in that fashion. Is it? You know, it's three stars. Clearly, yeah. it's it's flawed. Yeah, I'll be honest. Um, it's it's 
it's just fine. I think it's I think it's almost too dominated by Keaton. I think it needed if you'd had a little bit more for the brothers, I think that might actually have kind of leveled it off a little bit and made it more powerful. Needed some special sauce, is that what you're saying? Super some, some pickles. Oh, I saw, I'm sorry, you were just trying to set up that joke. No, yeah. no I'm, I'm, just, I'm really hungry. I haven't eaten since about uh, 11, so I would quite like a McDonald's. Three stars then for the founder. And last but not least this week, we have John Wick, chapter two. Whee! In which... <laughs> Basically, uh, what are your names? Helen and James. <laughs> Helen and James met Keanu Reeves last Friday because we are doing a John Wick Chapter 2 spoiler special podcast and Keanu Reeves was in London and they met him and I don't know if you saw on our Twitter feeds that the picture they have with him. He, has, he hasn't stopped smiling, Keanu, He's since so he met nice. Helen and James. He can't stop talking about them. He's like, dudes. Um, and they've been, frankly, insufferable since Friday. <laughs> so, um, but I'm glad, I'm glad for you that you were able to meet him. <laughs> anyway, uh, John Wick Chapter 2, in which Keanu Reeves, her suit hitman, heads to Rome and tries to kill everything that moves. Does he succeed? Yay! Jimbo. Yay! He <laughs> really does. Uh, yeah, this is the follow-up to uh, David Leach and Chad Stahelski's John Wick. Uh, David Leach not actually in this one, because he was making a movie with Charlie Theron. Uh, but Chad Stahelski's solo on this one, and it picks up about five days, I would say, after the first film finishes. So he has a new dog. He's killed basically everyone in New York and he's gone home for a cup of Bovril uh, and Ricardo Scamaccio Santino turns up at his front door and says now that you're back I need you to go and kill someone uh, and they have a little conversation about it and John politely refuses and so Ricardo Scamaccio understandably blows his house up um, John Wick not once to take this lying down then goes on a huge rampage of revenge and the, I mean the body count is obscene yeah. he kills everyone yeah. so well um, I mean it's amazing we, uh, it, it's, it's beautifully shot um, Stahelski has this thing where uh, he's, he's a big fan of master shots so he doesn't believe in the kind of green grass editing style of cutting together action what he tends to do is say someone get Keanu push him in front of the camera and action and he just sits there and watches Keanu Reeves beat the shit out of people um, and this is essentially how it goes has everyone seen there's a YouTube video out there of Keanu on a gun range like shooting a shotgun and an assault rifle and a pistol and it's utterly terrifying because he's incredibly good at it and that's essentially what he does so there's lots of gun foo in it there's a prologue with uh, Peter Stamari which is fantastic which yeah. has lots of car foo in it there's probably some yeah. dog foo at some point there's a lot of foo in this film pencil uh, foo pen pencil oh, there's foo. Pe oh yeah. the pencil, pencil foo, foo is so good uh, it gives great pencil foo. Um, yeah, I mean, it's fantastic. I mean, it's beautifully shot. There's a sequence that goes all through Rome and it brings in all, all, all that sort of beautiful architecture uh, as well as the killing. Um, and it is, I mean, Stahelski talked to us about it. It's basically oh, did he now? porn. And yes, when we sat down with him, which was just before Helen and I met Keanu Reeves. That's um, correct. And when we sat down once. with yeah. Keanu for a period of time and Fine. had pictures taken with him. It was lovely. We're friends now. Um <laughs> Yeah, so is it, there's, is it there's Keanu Reeves at AOL.com. Is that? That's exactly. Anyone right, wants yeah. to try that, just see what happens. <laughs> at bounces Gmail, back. At Gmail at Gmail.com. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's some fantastic action in this. It, it does. I think it, I, I preferred it to the first one. Now, Chris, you're a, you're a you're a, a, a sort of a recent convert. Your Damascene conversion to the Church of Wick. Yes, I uh, yeah, I, yeah. I I plead forgiveness from yeah. John Wick. It will uh, not be given. Chris, I think the Equalizer <laughs> is better, Hewitt. What? 
Uh, something I still what? stand by, Jimbo. Uh, equi- what? Equalizer was a seminal TV show. You mean the film? <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I can't back that up. Um, I really enjoyed the Equalizer. I think, you know, the, the bit where he goes to B&Q and sadly not John Wick, so there was an opportunity missed and just kills everybody. That was good. Yeah. Denzel kicking ass is always is always fun. Uh, Keanu yeah, kicking I, ass is more fun. Well, the yeah, but imagine them together, Helen. That's what I'm trying to make happen with my petition that I will be asking all of you to sign afterwards uh, to make John Wick Chapter Three also the Equalizer Two. But I liked John Wick the first time I saw it, but I didn't love it, and then I saw it again with yes, my wife who was sitting over there, and uh, I absolutely just something clicked for me, uh, and it, it it's. I love action movies and I love uh, it, this feels to me like the the best American action movie of the last 10-15 years and it's a really interesting character because this could have been so so by the numbers we've all seen this plot before you know a man who goes out and he's a hitman and he's the best hitman in the world and he has one last job and he walks away from the job and and then he gets drawn back into the game again and then he has to kill everyone and we've seen that it's a Dolph Lundgren movie we've all seen it <laughs> There's a dozen of them out there, but there's something about this style of Chad Sahelski and David Leach in the first movie, and that's continued over to this. But there's also this really interesting uh, otherworldly mythology behind the movie that underpins John Wick, the, the idea of this... The hotel, the, the hotel, hotel for his, yeah, gold hotel. coins. Yeah. There's a little bit more of that in this well, one. Well, they double down on it in this one. The yeah, first really one was good. kind of serious with a slightly surreal undertone, and this is just batshit yeah. Yeah, in a really, really really brilliant way there's gold yeah. coins everywhere but also you know, there's, there's a, the, the sequence where he goes to Rome and I would say and I think I, without fear of contradiction this is the best no. movie set in Rome um, <laughs> <laughs> and probably the best movie set in Italy I would say and I, I think that's you did this earlier so I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> raised for this <laughs> can you counterfill name one film set in Rome oh National Lampoon's Chris your identification you're absolutely he's right he's upset me twice today there was that and then there was the moment when you guys sit next to Chris he just turned to me and with this like grin on his face he just went oh Phil you absolute tedious moron <laughs> <laughs> for no reason <laughs> I mean he had a point but like keep it in context <laughs> he had a point <laughs> <laughs> we gotta keep those things in house man sorry keep, yeah. 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 we're all friends here I say with love nothing but yeah. love nothing it's but possible love. we've digressed it's it is possible. I, I want to say I love this movie a lot I love it more than Rainbows it is um, you love it more than La La Land yes I do yes a <laughs> and lot and you love La La Land a lot oh, so, so much yeah. no, um, this is another, another day of gun it's, if you it's, will um, oh god no it's good I'm going to go back to my review. You're ruining Don Wick. Stop it. <laughs> there is a musical bit in this which we will not spoil because there it's is. in the spoiler podcast, it's which is perhaps the greatest thing ever. Yeah. But we're um, not going to tell you now. We're not going to, yeah. We're, um, we're, we're going to have to save some stuff for the spoiler yeah. podcast because we have to record that still. But, um, yeah. but I will say that Keanu's action is stunning in this. It's absolutely beautiful. And I also saw this after spending all day watching VFX breakdowns. Um, and there's very, very little VFX in this, except to like add blood splatter I think yeah. that's what they basically did um, and that's kind of impressive in this day and age so um, so yeah full marks to everybody because not, not just Keanu but like Ruby Rose and Common and the, uh, the other people yeah. obviously trained their butts off mm. um, to do this so fair play to them 
Yeah, it's 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 really good. I mean, it's a really old sort of old school Hong Kong action film, but yeah. kind of with a Western spin on it. It's great. And I will say, just to Empire's editor Terry White, who really really hated John Wick Two, <laughs> that not everyone agrees with us, but she's wrong, and that's fine. Yeah, she's wrong. I mean, with the greatest of respect, she is our Lord and Master, but she's wrong. Absolutely. I I, I will say just to go back to the idea about this this thing in Roma got sidetracked, obviously, but um, there's a wonderful woozy. There's a moment in a in a woo, bath. Woo, woo, yeah, literally yeah, woozy. Uh, that it's just it doesn't. There's a moment in the in the bath. So you'll know when you see it. That just feels unlike any conventional action movie. You know, when when Taken went to Europe, it, the the wheels came off, for example. And that's always the worry that this could turn into holiday on the buses, and it's just John Wick going to Rome, and it just. just is Zoolander two. Yeah, yeah. Zoolander two. Another great movie set in Rome. Um, <laughs> But it doesn't happen. It holds it together and it's fantastic and Keanu kills everything that moves and honestly, all is right with the world when that happens. Uh, so yes, four stars for John Wick Chapter 2 and if you do keep your ears peeled for our spoiler special podcast uh, with Chad Stahelski and Keanu Reeves and these two fangirling over <laughs> Keanu Reeves, um, it's going to be up on Monday, February 20th. We have to record our bits first. Um, are you free tomorrow? Do you want to do that yep, tomorrow? Tomorrow's fine. Yeah, tomorrow. Are you free tomorrow? Yeah. Fine. Okay, good. Anyone else free? Anyone else coming? Uh, okay, also out this week, but we can't talk about it, is The Great Wall. Yes, the, which Helen uh, and I didn't see yesterday. Yeah, the Sang Yimou epic in which Matt Damon heads to China to fight off some beasties. Uh, it's under embargo until Thursday. Yes, it's been out in Beijing for literally three months. So you could have flown to Beijing, yes, and seen the movie, watched it come back the and then told these people yes. what you thought of it. Yes, I will say it's legendary. Literally, it's a legendary picture. <laughs> um, and it stars Matt Damon. Yeah, I, do, I don't think it's a spoiler to say it made me want to see a film of the Rift War books, if anybody's read Magician. It really does. Um, it, I mean, it would if we'd seen it, yeah. which we haven't. Okay. Uh, time now for this week's guest. When we started thinking about who we wanted on the 250th podcast, we decided we wanted someone who'd been on the podcast before and had left their mark. And this gentleman most certainly did that. Not only is he an Oscar-winning screenwriter and recently director of one of the biggest franchises in Hollywood, but he was at the heart of probably our most acclaimed and certainly longest podcast. Will you please welcome a man who knows his way around usual suspects and impossible missions. It's the great Christopher McQuarrie! I got here as quick as I could. I'm sorry about that. Where have you been? What have you been doing? Uh, some of that is confidential. Okay. But, uh, every, everywhere. Uh, everywhere between Leavesden and some other part of England I don't know the name of. <laughs> well, I'm glad you came because I have some unanswered questions about Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. <laughs> okay, good. I, didn't, I thought we had covered pretty much No, we thing. didn't cover everything. Uh, in, at the 37th minute, you were saying, no, no. I think we've covered pretty much everything, but uh, but thank you for coming in. Uh, how are things going on thing that you cannot talk about? Uh, I can talk about that thing. I can't yeah. talk about the other thing. Uh, well, okay. I can't talk about the other thing because the thing's not real yet. I, it's it's oh. a thing I'm dying to talk about, but I can't talk about it until it's real. Uh, <laughs> it's funny you say that. <laughs> Um, no, but the other thing is going great. We start shooting on April 10th. Uh, 
with rumors are true, we start shooting in Paris. Um, and uh, very excited about this one. A lot of people coming back, including people you would not expect to be back. And mm-hmm. it's it's a very different Ethan Hunt. I can I can promise mm-hmm. you that. When you say people we might not expect to be back, is that people who might apparently be dead? Uh, it's funny you said. Um, I, it depends on your definition of apparently. Okay. <laughs> okay. Pardon me, I'm channeling my inner Bill Clinton with that answer. <laughs> Um, but yeah, we won't we won't talk too much about uh, Mission Six because obviously you're you're prepping it at the moment. But this is um, you're the first person to direct two Mission Impossible movies. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, I guess only five movies in, but traditionally the you know, the movie the, the franchise has switched directors at this point. What made you want to come back for for another go around? Um, Tom, pretty mm-hmm. much. Uh, yeah, there. The, we, I mean, we were. We were on the set on one of the very last nights, and it was kind of a very hectic schedule on that movie. We didn't really know what the ending of the movie was until 10 days before we finished it. And uh, and we were on the set getting ready to finish this one scene, and we suddenly came up with the idea for the beginning of the next movie. Um, it sort of came up rather cynically, actually, in the... the the producer was was talking to me about some of the stuff we had gone over in the movie, and I, I'm trying to be as vague as I can. And I, I <laughs> he said, "Well, this this thing would never work." And I said, "Well, it would work if you did it like this." And he went from being very cynical to going, "Oh my god, oh my god, I want to see that movie." <laughs> uh, so I ran over to Tom's trailer. He was just getting ready, and I said, "Hey, I've got this crazy idea." And he turned to me and said the exact same idea. Oh, really? He said, Whoa. "What? This happens." And I was like, oh, my God. So we immediately started talking about it. Even though we hadn't finished that movie yet, we were already into this movie. So he he sort of did what he did to me on Edge of Tomorrow 2 and on everything else. He just pressured me until I said, all right, fine, fine. <laughs> I'll do it. And uh, and and I, w- I was sort of daunted by the fact that this movie has been these movies have been directed by different directors for every one. And I said, I'll do it on the condition that the same director can't come back. <laughs> and, and I want everybody to watch this movie and for anybody who doesn't know to think that somebody else entirely directed it. Okay. And that's, that's what we've been doing. It's a, it's a very different movie from my style and from my approach. And, and it's been sort of fun uh, giving other people... Uh, letting other people say, well, you could do it this way. And I said, okay, you're right. I could, I, I wouldn't do it that way. So maybe that's why I should do it that way. And it's caused me then to go back and rewrite the script for this other director that's currently in control of the movie. Ah. Do you have a name for him? No. Okay. As long as, as, long <laughs> as it's, as it's not Alan Smithy. That. That's, right. the, <laughs> that's the only director. I, I'm interested to know how Tom Cruise pressurizes a person is it a charm offensive or is it more like you know he's a very fit man i imagine he could beat you up if he wanted to like what what form does that pressure take no it's it's always a charm offensive and and in the end it was a logic offensive there was a moment i'm sure you read about it you may have read about it where the movie shut down there was a, a very a very unceremonious and very unexpected uh just shut down of the movie and i actually moved back to the united states thinking the movie was done and two weeks after my children were enrolled in school, I came back here to pack up my apartment. And Tom called me and said, hey, movie's back on. 
uh, and I said, I just moved. I moved, moved my family. And I, he said, well, let's go out and we'll talk about it. And, and we went out and had, we walked around Hyde Park. And I talked about, you know, I've had a lot to think about in the last two weeks. And I was thinking about doing this project. And I don't know. And he said, look, you could do this movie. You could do another movie. We'll always work together. It's whatever you want to do. I will say one thing. <laughs> this movie's going. He said, I don't know what other movies you've got right now, but this is a go movie. And go movies are pretty tough to come by. And yeah. he was right. Nothing else was going. So, uh, <laughs> so and, and, he's, and, and he said, you know, we haven't even had our first story meeting on this because he'd been traveling and working on The Mummy and all this other stuff. I said, you're right. I guess I should probably pitch you the movie because you remember the thing we talked about. He said, yeah. And I go, that's like, this big now. It's not even what the movie's about. He said, well, what's the movie about? And I pitched him the story. He goes, you buried the lead, man. Why didn't you tell me that at the beginning of the meeting? Uh, so he became very excited about it. And then, and now I'm on the movie again. So, <laughs> okay. Um, he's there, gonna, is no, there is no escape. I remember the, um, you telling me about the first time you met with Brian Singer, you met Tom Cruise on, on Valkyrie. And it was a long, it, it didn't, it, it was a longer meeting than perhaps you had intended. Three hours. Three hours. Uh, what was that first meeting like? What can you remember about it? The, my first meeting or the first meeting with me and Brian and Tom? Uh, first, I think it was the first meeting with you and Brian and Tom. The first meeting with me and Brian and Tom. Um, that movie, that meeting was six hours long. <laughs> that was, wow. the, it, we, and, and that's the sort of thing where you're having a meeting with Tom Cruise and going, don't you have other stuff to do? Because <laughs> we really, and there was no detail to infinitesimal. And there was a moment because Brian Singer is the sort of person who really likes to challenge every little aspect of your personality and sort of destroy your entire world order. Uh, and I could tell he was very excited about doing that sort of thing with Tom at some point. And it, very unexpectedly, there was a moment when Tom, sorry, Brian said, can I ask you a question? Me, just in the most innocent way. And Tom looked at him and he said, Brian, you can ask me anything you want. And I saw this light go on. And Brian began asking the most personal questions you could ever ask of a human being in your life, especially if that human being is Tom Cruise. <laughs> Every question you've ever wanted to ask Tom Cruise, Brian asked them for a about two hours. <laughs> it was, and, and Tom Cruise answered every single one of the questions and he just, and none of the answers were what you expected. And it was, and I realized that this was sort of a, this was the icebreaker. This was kind of the beginning of, Brian wanted him, or, or Tom wanted him to confront him and he wanted, he was like, look, just ask me whatever you want. And you could very clearly see that it was, yeah, that story you heard, no, here's like the, the truth of it. Uh, one of which was, uh, Brian said, the one I can tell, Brian said, um, he said, what's the weirdest story you've ever heard about yourself? And he said, oh, that's, that's easy. You, you're, you're not allowed to look me in the eye. And I had heard that story. And I said, now, I said, well, where, where do you think that comes from? He goes, oh, I'll tell you exactly where it comes from. You're, on the, you're, you're, you're acting in a movie, like me, and you're on a set in New York City, and there are 300 extras, and you're walking down the street, and you, of course you're supposed to just be an anonymous guy, and all the extras are walking past, and they're all staring at you because you're not an anonymous guy, you're me. And you have an AD who's a screamer, which is why I don't like working with ADs who are screamers, and the AD is screaming at all the extras, don't look at Tom, don't look at Tom! 
And of course, somebody goes home that night and says, God, you can't look at Tom. You know, type, <laughs> types that out on the internet, and then that becomes the story that you're not allowed to look at Tom. And we laughed at that. Months later, we're shooting Valkyrie in Germany, and Tom walks in as a colonel in the, in, the, in the Wehrmacht, and there's a room full of generals, and some of those generals are actors like Terrence Stamp, and some of those generals are day players that you hired from a German casting director. Mm. But they're all generals, and we notice that half of the generals are like this. <laughs> and Tom... Tom walks, it's, it was so, it was sort of funny, and then it became very painful. Tom just walked up to Brian and he said, could you, could you please ask the generals to look at me? I'm, they outrank me. I mean, I'm not supposed to look at them. They're supposed to, and he would direct it, and Brian would come over, and, he'd, and some of them spoke only German. Through a translator, we'd say, and they'd say, oh, okay, okay. And they'd look at Tom, and Brian would say, action, and they would go. <laughs> Until finally Tom is going, sir, please, sir, can you look at me? Sir, sir, which we have on film. It's great. <laughs> Extraordinary. Was there a moment when you realized that uh, you and Tom were, were going to be a team working on a number of movies together? I mean, you've, you've written Edge of Tomorrow for him. Obviously, you wrote and directed Jack Reacher, the two Mission movies, a number of movies I guess you've worked on, perhaps uncredited. Yeah, uh, no, I did not. I, I didn't. I mean, when I, when I ended up in a room with Tom for the first time, I really thought... There couldn't be a person more diametrically opposed to what I do and what I'm about and where I was in my career then. And I learned very quickly, no, we actually see things really pretty much the same way. Uh, he, he taught me a lot in terms of, uh, I, think, I think we talked about this at one point when I, I pitched a movie to him and mm. he said, that movie's really great. That's a really great idea. Let's focus on movies that can get made. Um, and... And it's been sort of a mutual education and a, 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 and a real education for me because Tom's philosophy and his approach is very, very, very simple. There isn't a Tom Cruise movie. It's not, you know, this is how I make movies. Tom's really all about emotional clarity and just and creating, t taking whatever the story is, like Valkyrie, for example. He never said, yeah, we're going to change the ending and kill Hitler so that more people will come and see the movie. <laughs> Uh, he just said, "We're gonna we're gonna tell the story. We're gonna we're gonna do it in a way that it, that the most possible people can see it. Because you want people to see the story, and you and you want people to be engaged in it." He never asked us to compromise or make a happy ending or or sell things out. Um, but then, but then when we were making that movie, uh, I think the next, as a matter of fact, the next thing we did together, he called me at, right after we had finished Valkyrie, and he was. Uh, contemplating doing The Tourist. Mm -hmm. And that's how I ended up <clears throat> with my name on that movie. Um, <laughs> Tom. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry, I have a little water. <laughs> um, uh, Tom, Tom had, had called, and we had, we had tackled that, tried to do it, and in, and in so doing that, we were now developing a piece of... On Valkyrie, Valkyrie's a true story. Tom can sort of bring what Tom brings to it, but you can't change history. Um, one of the very interesting things he did on that movie, he said, uh, when the bomb goes off, I don't know how many of you have seen Valkyrie, when the bomb, there's a bomb that goes, spoiler alert, Hitler dies, or actually doesn't in this movie. Um, when the bomb goes off and Stauffenberg drives away from the wolf slayer, we were in the cutting room and Tom said, when I leave the wolf slayer, don't go back to the wolf slayer. <laughs> 
don't cut back to what happened to Hitler. And we had shot all of this really cool stuff and painstakingly designed all the costumes of all the guys who'd been blown up in the room. Uh, and there was cool stuff where Mussolini showed up, which we never got to shoot. And, and I said, but Tom, everybody knows this is not how Hitler died. And Tom said, one, nobody knows how Hitler died. <laughs> two, you're going to be very surprised at how many people don't know who Hitler is. <laughs> and he was right. Uh, we, we cut it, we, we changed it, and we realized two things after we tested the movie. One, everybody thought Hitler was dead, including Germans who'd been educated with the story. Uh, and nobody knew who Hitler was. Like, they weren't feeling it. And we, that's why we put that thing at the beginning of the movie with the flag and the okay. oath and all of that stuff. But anyway... Um, we so we went from Valkyrie to the tourist to uh, I, I did a little work on Ghost Protocol. We went to Jack Reacher, and on every movie we were always talking. Tom is always making three movies. It's the movie he just finished, the movie he's shooting now, and the movie he's about to do. And he just goes from movie to movie to movie. That's really what he loves to do. And I just I, I guess I'm you know in the cartoon when the guy is falling down a hill and gets. <laughs> There's snow, and he turns into a snowball. I'm in the Tom Cruise snowball now. And when the movie shut down, when Mission shut down, he was off somewhere. We hadn't talked about the next thing. And I was sitting. I was on vacation. I was in the room at my friend's house where, where I had where I visited him in the summer 10 years ago mm. when I got the call that Valkyrie was going to happen. And it was 10 years to the week. And I hung up the phone that the movie had been shut down, and I thought... Oh, wow. It, it just hit me 10 years ago. That was a pretty good run. And I guess, <laughs> I guess that's it. I guess we're finished. And so I, I sort of emotionally divested myself of the whole thing and said, you know, you can't complain about that. You just had a 10-year run with Tom. And I emailed Tom a couple nights ago and said, yeah, this is this kind of revelation I had. And he had no concept of it. It's just been this blur of making movies. We never set out to be a partnership and I think that's part of the strength is the partnership is that neither of us takes it for granted yeah 10 years wow yeah wow yeah. so how many things do you have that have not yet become a thing at any one time you know to keep that kind of the, the, from hitting keep the snowball from hitting the barn door well he's he's always got a thing and he's always kind of open to more I remember with the tourist there was a script called Wichita which became uh Night and day. There was Motorcade. There were all of these movies. And, and every week you would read in the trades, there was a whole thing going on of what's Tom going to do next. And my script was in this, you know, when you go to the lottery and it's the, the ping pong balls in the machine, <laughs> that's kind of felt like your script was in this, like who's, which ping pong ball are they, or who's going to get voted off the island this week? <laughs> and every week they would say, well, he's not doing this movie and he's not doing that movie. And then one week, he was not doing the tourist. Yeah. Um, and we had just happened to be invited to dinner that night by Brian Singer. We had just done Valkyrie. We all went out to dinner, and I could tell Tom was really uncomfortable. I don't think he'd been in that position where, you know, he had not done a writer's project and then was next to the writer that day. And I'd done months and months of work on the movie. And finally, he just turned to me and goes, hey, listen about the tourist. And I said, stop. You don't owe me an explanation. You're not responsible for my career. I have my job. You have your job. That's all we're ever going to say about it. That's it. And I could see Tom just went, oh, okay. Uh, because one of my big rules that I 
try to express to all of my writer friends is be the easiest person to fire. Because the, sh- the, the next time when they go to hire somebody, be like, well, that guy's easy to fire. Let's, let's call that guy. That's, I'm telling you, that's a whole lot more important than any good writing that you're going to do in a movie. It's just like, oh, when it's time to get rid of him, it's just great. You just call him and he's like, I get it. And just, you know, bring him back. Bring him back. It's good advice. I will try and follow it tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> Don't be the guy they want to fight. This is a very- <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, does writing come easily to you? Or is it a, a bit of a struggle at times? Uh, when I know exactly where to go, if I have the focal point either of a scene or of the story, I know exactly what the ending is. I mean, Usual Suspects was engineered entirely in reverse order. We came up with the title, then the poster. Title, tagline, poster, end of the movie, and then said, oh, okay, well, that's, that's going to be the end of our movie. The hard part was, where does the story begin? I didn't know what the opening of the script was um, until I found a scene I had written a year before unrelated to anything. And it was five pages long, which to me was half a day of work. So I was like, okay, that's the beginning of the movie. <laughs> and, it was, and the whole movie was about connecting those two scenes. And if you watch The Usual Suspects, you'll notice the movie has no beginning. The opening scene is the ending of the B story of the A story. So I don't really know what the beginning of The Usual Suspects is. I never figured it out. I never bothered to ask. Um, but if you give me that, if you give me that focal point, uh, and, and, and other times, so in this one, the mission that I'm writing now, it's still writing it, um, <laughs> the, the scenes, I have all of these scenes. I have like a, a just a, there's this scene, there's this, there's this challenge, there's this emotional dilemma. Because this time I said, I don't want to string together a bunch of action scenes. I want to actually deal with character. So I put Ethan in a bunch of really complicated moral quandaries. And now they're sitting on my desk, sort of scattered all over the place. And I'm trying to find ways to connect them. And then ironically, the way to connect them was through giant action scenes. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking movie. I can't tell you. It literally, you just, you think, I've got it. I know this is my third Mission Impossible movie now. And it's like, I figured it out. I know how to control Mission Impossible. And Mission Impossible goes, no, you don't. No. <laughs> this is what Mission Impossible is going to be. And it is. It just bends itself back into the shape of what it wants to be. Does it involve going around the world and looking at buildings that Ethan can climb, clamber up or cling onto or trying to think of the next thing? I mean, the plane stunt at the beginning of Rogue Nation, trying to top that. How the hell do you do that? I don't know. Um, <laughs> and I have no to, pressure. And I, and, I, and I have to find out by April 10th. <laughs> I may have found it today. I came to Tom with a picture of something, and Tom looked at it and said, that's awesome. I want to fall off of that. <laughs> and I was like, ah, it only took me, yeah. But it's a, that's like, you know, it's like, okay, that's, I can see it on a poster and I can see Tom falling off of it. Yeah. I mean, people bring me stuff all the time and I go, you can't fall off of it. You can fall down it. Like you can roll down. There's not, you gotta fall off. It's gotta, I don't know how to describe it to you. And they look very perplexed and they, they go away sad. So it's not going to start with Ethan stuck in traffic on his way to a podcast. It's not going to... It's not, that's not the opening of the movie that it's you came up with. It's funny you say No, it's going to... It starts in a very unconventional way. It does not start with action. Okay, interesting. That's, that's the, the big one on this one. That was the hardest pitch of the movie. Oh, okay. Was, can't start with an action scene. 
got to start. And, and Tom was like, really? And I said, we're going to start with Ethan. We're going to start with, I've seen five of these movies. I don't know who Ethan Hunt is. I know one movie sort of dealt with his personal life. And the other four movies are about people speculating who, what's really going on in Ethan's head. And then the end of the movie says, nope, you don't really know Ethan. And I said, I want to know who Ethan is in this movie. I want an emotional journey for this character. And Tom really embraced it. And it's, it's, a, it's a very different journey for his character. That's kind of almost the reverse of Rogue Nation, where you, you went slightly smaller towards the end. Like, you have all these enormous action scenes, and then you don't need to keep topping yourself to keep the, keep the tension growing. And so with this, I guess it's a similar thing. You don't need a bigger action scene at the beginning. You just need to hook people's attention. Yes, and if, if I care about the character, and, you know, I uh, do you guys know Film Crit Hulk? Do you know this guy? Yeah. Um, he gave a really good example, uh, uh, just really simple. He, he dissected uh, two films by Andrew Stanton, Finding Nemo and John Carter of Mars, and sort of talked about just taking the two minutes at the beginning of the movie to introduce your character, what he wants, and... Tom and I were working on uh, Mina, which is now American-made, Doug Lyman's film, and we were re- we we were struggling to connect the audience to this character's very funny beginning. It's a great character. You're gonna love the movie, um, and we, it was so clear to us what why this character was likable. But that's because we'd seen the whole movie 15 times, and the audience was not connecting in the same way. And we kept writing voiceovers he's, 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 he's kind of you're in his head in the beginning of the movie we're writing these voiceovers and he does something very funny and we're thinking well he's saying all this funny stuff and he does this funny thing but why aren't they connecting and Tom called me in the middle of the night and said I've, I, I know what it is but this is not the first scene of the movie and he pitched me a scene right before that where something tragic happens to this character before he starts saying the funny things and doing the funny things. And I said, you know, between the two of us, we've been making movies for 50 years. And it's never quite crystallized for me. Where I wish somebody had told me 20 years ago, we care less about what a character says or does than we do about what happens to him. Hmm. And, it, and Tom and I were like, wow, you're write that down. You know, that's... <laughs> so we took that into... Uh, we took that into uh, uh, this new one. I almost called it Rogue Nation, which it's not. We don't know the title. That's the other thing I got to think of. <laughs> but I have time. That's a little. <laughs> you got a little bit of time. It's fine. It's fine. I just want to go back very, very quickly to um, you're an Oscar winner. You won for the usual suspects. Now, nowadays, the Oscar right. Yeah, absolutely. Damn straight. <laughs> Nowadays, the Oscar race is so played out in you know, the media. We all know who's won Guild Awards. We all know who's won Critics' Choice Awards. That we have a very good idea, and probably 90% who's going to win the Oscar on the night. Was it like that for you? Did you know, or was it uh, out of the blue? I was at the Academy Awards sitting next to Randall Wallace, the writer of Braveheart. And sitting behind me were all eight writers of Toy Story. <laughs> Woody Allen did not have a seat because he didn't come for Mighty Aphrodite, so no. Um, and the guys from Nixon were sitting right next to them. Um, and I remember Braveheart won, won its third or fourth award very early in the night, 
Spacey had already won. He was the first award to yeah. win. Um, and for me, that was the victory because I remember coming up with the notion that Verbal would have cerebral palsy. I was sitting in a restaurant and I, uh, I looked up at the cashier and the cashier behind the counter was someone that I thought very much, he looked very much like I thought Verbal would look. And I noticed he had this slight palsy in his right hand. And I was looking at him and I thought, the last five best Oscar actors were either handicapped or mentally insane. <laughs> I'm going to write a character who's both. And I turned to everybody at the table. I just turned to everybody at the table and said, Kevin Spacey's going to do this and he's going to win the Academy Award. And they all sort of laughed at me and I said, no, you watch, you watch. This is going to be a fastball right down the middle. <laughs> and when Kevin Spacey won, I was like, yes. I was like, fuck, I called it. I called it. <laughs> I wasn't even thinking about what was going to happen an hour later. And you convince yourself that it's an honor just to be nominated. Um, and <laughs> and, I, and it, I mean, it was awesome. This is like the single greatest roller coaster ride ever, ever engineered. And so when it won, when Braveheart won its third award and Spacey had won, it all kind of went away. It just the, the the sense of end that it could ever happen went away, and I turned to Randall Wallace and I said, "Ride the wave, motherfucker!" <laughs> and he kind of smiled at me like, "Yeah, I'm gonna." <laughs> and it was sort of, and it was cool. And then, and all the guys from Toy Story. I mean, you're talking about you. It's such a murderer's row. It was Joss Whedon and Andrew Stanton and John Lasseter, and you know, all of those guys in the infancy of of uh, of uh, Pixar. Um, and then when they said my name, you kind of went, you go blind. And I, I remember being violently pummeled by all eight guys from Toy Story. <laughs> they were all just like shaking me like this. And, uh, and yeah, it was so, so no, I didn't expect it. Uh, I do remember the great experience. Do you want to hear this about what? Yeah. I, okay, so I remember the great experiences. You, first of all, Susan Sarandon presented the award, and she's Susan Sarandon, and uh, and so I got to meet Susan Sarandon. And then you, and one of the cool things when you win an Oscar and you're kind of in a mental coma, you do things like kiss Susan Sarandon, thinking you could just you could just do that. You have an Oscar, uh, and you go backstage, and there's a little red line, or it might have been a blue line. You have to follow the line. And it, it is literally like you're on, it's a small world at Disney World. You're sort of, you're being piloted around to this, you, you go and you sign this, these posters and you, you go and give interviews to these people and you go in front of all these photographers and before you leave the room, they hand you a photograph of that was just taken of you in a frame. It's like they just produce it a minute later. And after you've given the interviews and done all the things, you get to, you, the, the line takes you to a pair of doors and the doors open and they say, thank you. And you go through the door and the doors close and you're in a hallway all by yourself and it's over. <laughs> and you're just standing there holding this thing and you're just like, I don't know where to go. And I don't, I want to do that again. I want to get, <laughs> this was the coolest ride. And I remember going into the lobby and on my way into the awards, this is back in the days when I smoked, I, I was going into the awards and I was very nervous and I asked a guy, can I go outside to have a cigarette? And they said, no, 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 you can't go out. You know, nobody can go out. Security, blah, blah, blah. I said, okay. So now I go back and I'm in the same lobby. And there's 
30 or 40 people in the lobby who've left during a commercial break and are waiting to go back in and you and they're all watching the telecast on the TV and you walk into the room behind them and suddenly everybody turns around and looks at you. <laughs> and I look over at the door and I'm standing there with a photograph and this Oscar and I look over at the door and there's the same guy and I thought, can I go outside and have a smoke? He goes, you could do whatever you want. <laughs> And I went outside and I put the picture down and I put the Oscar on it. I'm standing there having a cigarette and I'm just alone outside and thinking, holy fuck, I just won an Academy Award. This is the craziest thing. And I looked and there was a line. There's the governor's ball right behind the, the there's big tented area. And there was a line of all these waiters and cooks that were taking a break right before. Uh, and they were all smoking and they were just staring at me. And I was sort of standing like this, and somebody said, is that yours? And I said, no, I'm holding it for somebody else. <laughs> and they said, it's yours. And I said, yeah, it's mine. And they said, what'd you win for? I said, screenplay. They said, what movie? I said, Usual Suspects. And one guy goes, dude, I saw that movie. <laughs> and that kind of like broke it. And people walked over and they said, can I hold it? And I was like, yeah. And I was holding it, handing it to all these people. And everybody's passing it around. And of course, nobody had cell phones, so there were no selfies being taken. And one guy walked up to me, that's a true story, and he said, Mr. McQuarrie, I said, yes, and he goes, I, he told me his name, I can't remember it, and he said, I'm a writer, and I, I, I was signed at CAA, and last week my agent dropped me, uh, and I was just wondering if I could hold it, and I said, yeah, okay, no, <laughs> and he kind of looked at me, and I said, I'm going to tell you something, a couple years ago, I was out at a restaurant and Steve Tisch was in the restaurant and his Forrest Gump had won the Oscar the night before and he brought his Oscar to breakfast and everybody was at this restaurant was holding the Oscar and handing it around and somebody asked me if I wanted to hold it and I had this really weird feeling that I shouldn't do it. I didn't want to know what it felt like. I thought to myself, someday I'm going to win one of those and, and that's when. And Brian Singer, funny enough, the next night, when I saw him, he, or that night rather, he would not touch mine and he would not touch Spacey's because he goes, no, 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 I don't want to know what it feels like. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. And I said, ah, but that's just me. Go ahead, hold it. And he went, no, you know what? Thank you. I'm not going to do that. And he turned around and he walked back into the governor's ball and I, and that man was Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> Sorry. It's not Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> It'd be great if it was. Though. It would have been great if it was Aaron Sorkin. That would be a great story. Okay, so um, what we usually do on the live podcast is we have you guys grill us. But Chris has been so amazing and has driven here all the way from Leavesden. And we've got about 12 minutes left. Are you happy to take a couple of questions from the audience? Please, I would love to. Are you guys happy to do that? Do you want to do that? So who has questions for Chris McQuarrie? Let's put your hand up. I believe we have a roving microphone. Third row. Fourth row. Yes, please. And if we don't, just yell it out. I'll repeat it. Okay. All right. So the question is, uh, you've worked with Tom Cruise an awful lot. Have you encouraged him in that time to take roles other than a conventional hero role, I guess? I can't wait for you to see this next movie we're doing. Um, yes. And in fact, um, well, Magnolia, it's really funny because um, we've talked about that movie. Uh, one of the things I've heard 
I've heard him I'm criticized if he should take more risks. He should take more, take more risks and do more movies like Magnolia. Magnolia is really not a risk for Tom. Tom's not carrying that movie. The budget is microscopic compared to the other things he does. And frankly, he's not carrying the movie. So for him, Magnolia is just, is the, is the, he, found a, he found a filmmaker and he found a role and he said, I want to do that. For Tom, a risk is Edge of Tomorrow. All you need is kill, live, die, repeat. <laughs> what is the original, what is the official title now? Uh, the, the, the original, t- the title of the sequel? Yeah. It's, well now the brand is so diluted, it's what do you call it, the Edge of Yesterday or... <laughs> Live, die, repeat, repeat, which is Doug Lyman, like insisting that that's what we call it. Um, but, uh, you know, you think about Ghost Protocol. He took Brad Bird, who was an animator, and put him on the Mission Impossible franchise and did not tell Brad Bird, this is how you're directing the movie. He said, Brad, what do you want to do? And J.J. Uh, Abrams, J.J. Abrams, who is now J.J., was not that guy when Tom brought him on to do Mission 3. Um that's where Tom, if you'll notice what he's doing, the risks that he's taking are risks that he's taking in backing other people in these in these movies. Now, the the, the business, what the what the business was, and I say was because I feel there's been a radical shift in the business in just the last few months. I wonder why um, <laughs> that uh, that the business was in sort of this very hero driven. Uh, thing. It's not that way anymore. And the model, uh, if you, if you, what I've realized is we, we've been watching the demographic. Now we're going to get really into it. You've been watching the demographic, the younger demographic, 25 and under, has been sort of migrating away from movies. And the studios have been in this panic trying to figure out, well, how do we get them to come back? And we make it 3D and VR and all of this other stuff and, you know, cut it really fast and, you know, because they have short attention spans and they're looking at their phones. The truth of the matter is if you sit and you talk to a 15-year-old kid, which I spent most of the summer talking to all of my friends' kids, um, a 15-year-old kid has an infinite attention span. 15-year-old kid is watching eight-hour narratives and, you know, 10-hour narratives, consuming 20-hour video games with really complicated stories. And the reason that they're not coming to PG-13 movies is because PG-13 movies are rated PG-13. They're boring. You know, I watched the last episode of the first season of Fargo, and it's bloody and violent. Guy's with his leg in a bear trap, and his exposed bone is hanging out. I can't do any of that in a PG-13 movie. Um, And so I... You know, and and after I had this revelation, I sat down with Tom and said, "You know, the, the if they're not coming, why are we making movies to them? And why aren't we talking now about the next phase, which is let's make more grown-up movies. Let's go back to let's do Collateral. Let's do, you know, and and we talked about Jack Reacher's. If we go back and do another Jack Reacher, why are we making it for kids? Let's make it for grown-ups." Uh, and he's very, very receptive to the idea. And so we, the, we've got a lot of stuff now that's percolating for that very reason because it's not, not to say that it is safe to make. It's, it's, it's saying now that now you feel the market is opening up to it. The, 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 the audience is getting older. Uh, the, the kids are going and watching other stuff. And quite frankly, they're at home watching Game of Thrones, which would be NC-17 if I tried to make it. Um, <laughs> And so until they're old enough to get into my movies, I'm going to make movies for grown-ups. And Tom's totally on board with that. Um, 
it's it's a it's a very tricky time and one of the things that we can be grateful for about the many many horrible things that i think are going on in the world right now is it has sort of sharpened people's focus and you're feeling a a, a change in the attitude from in both the industry and from the audience that they want more challenging material, they want more grown-up material. That's not to say you're going to see $200 million R-rated movies, uh, but Logan is rated R. Deadpool was a watershed moment. Mm -hmm. You're going to see these more grown-up movies. It's not that Tom didn't want to make them. No one would make them. It's simply, it's, it was simply a matter of, you know, no one would do it and distributors wouldn't distribute them. And they're so terrified of us bringing them an R-rated movie because it's harder to get screens. The economics of it just simply didn't work. That's all changing. Uh, so I think you'll see uh, a little bit more of what you're asking for very, very soon. Like, real soon. <laughs> I think it means uh, Mission 6 is going to be NC-17. Is that right? That's a, that's a confirmation? Oh, if I could do that. Oh, my God. Awesome. <laughs> what is he falling off at the beginning? But actually, no. <laughs> but, but, I w but I will say, but I, but I will say you could, the problem is that if, if, you, could, if you did that with Mission, it would cease to be Mission. Yeah. It, it tonally, Mission has got to walk a very fine line, and we are pushing that line as far as we can. We've come up with ways to make the villain the villain and have the villain be truly evil without disrupting the tone of the movie, which is the, the, the puzzle of that, mm. of that franchise. Um, but that's not to say that there are other things down the road that, you know, Deadpool is an R-rated franchise. Yeah. It's, you know, and, that's, and so we're, we'll, be, we'll be doing that. Uh, any other questions, other questions for Chris? Uh, there was, yes, yeah, someone here in the second row. Um, I was just wondering how you actually felt on the day of the shooting of the lineup scene in The Usual Suspects, because obviously now it's like considered this great scene, but obviously it was a bit sort of different, I'm assuming, to what you wrote. Um, it was uh, funny enough, um, and I'm sorry if you've heard this story before. Uh, I'm glad you asked that question, though. Um, uh, it's a story I've told many times. When we were shooting that scene, there were other scenes in the movie that I was really upset about because they were deviating wildly from the script. Uh, but then, strangely enough, they were being very respectful of the material. As much as guys ran with it, Del Toro created that character out of nothing. I didn't write Fenster as a guy with mush mouth. Del Toro quite wisely recognized, none of my lines are important. And no one needs to understand them. So I'm just going to go for it. And Brian Singer was smart enough to recognize, yeah, actually, he doesn't say anything of any importance whatsoever. So just go ahead and talk that way. Um, when we were doing the lineup scene, uh, we, we shot that at the same day that we shot the interrogation scenes. And I'm the cop interrogating all the suspects. In the, I was supposed to be off camera, and then I found out you're on camera. And, <laughs> And, and, and so I, I ended up doing that scene. Now we're in the lineup room and you can see there's two cops in the, the, little, you know, the little glass booth. I'm the one on the left and a friend of mine who was visiting from out of town that day and who was not an actor and we needed another cop. We were like, you're in the movie. He was a guy I grew up with. I've known him since I was five years old. The camera is right between us. And I looked at him, and he's saying all the lines. He's the one yelling at the suspects. He's very good. He does a great job. Guy's never acted in his life. And he's not even a New Yorker, and he's speaking like New York. Um, he's, um, and I, I look at him, and I go, you see this camera right between us? He goes, yeah. I go, every 
second of film that runs through that camera, yeah? That's a trip to Europe. Don't fuck up. <laughs> and, and he turns to me, he goes, you motherfucker. And Brian yells, action. And he just he goes, <laughs> And all the guys came out and we had been given this note about 10,000 times of, well, why are all the suspects together? Why do they work together? And what brings them together as a group? And can't you write a scene where, and I wrote so many horrible scenes where they go out drinking and they go out partying and it was just like the, the bonding scene. It was just, it was worse than any dress montage in any mannequin movie <laughs> ever. Uh, and we never quite got it and it nagged us the whole time. We said, well, we'll find it. We'll, you know, we'll look for a way when we get the actors together. And they're doing the scene and uncharacteristically, Brian Singer was doing everything he could to get the scene exactly the way it was written in the script because there's voiceover over the scene. And, you know, it's the same line said five times. So do you really need to hear the same line said five times? So Brian was just focusing on story, story, story. And it was a long day and he wanted to get out of there. And it was very, very hot. Stephen Baldwin, for whatever reason, had chosen to wear a turtleneck and a leather jacket. <laughs> Everybody, all of, they all had their costume stuff going on and it now it was all biting them in the ass because it was so hot in there they were all miserable and they and then someone farted <laughs> and I mean horribly horribly and and you could just see the actors like oh god <laughs> and of course then they started laughing and as they started laughing Brian Singer started getting angry and he was saying do it again Back to one, and they and the first guy he goes not person one, position one. Back to one, and he's and they're all laughing, and the more Brian is yelling at them, the more they became little kids who were <laughs> laughing at what you know, they're laughing at this. And Benicio del Toro steps forward. They all calm down, and he steps forward and he does this laugh. He just snorts, and Stephen Baldwin is so angry because he's so hot and it smells so bad in the room. <laughs> Stephen hits Benicio in the arm. Benicio turns around and hits Stephen. And the other question that everybody kept asking was, well, how do we know Fred Fenster and McManus have this past together? Now, John Ottman is in the cutting room on a flatbed. This is before Avid. And he's watching these dailies on a little, tiny, little eight-inch screen. And he sees this, and he was like, hey, that's cool. And he cut it into the movie. And he cut in Benicio's laugh. And he cut in everybody else's laughs. And all of a sudden, all of the questions about Fenster and McManus's relationship and the relationship between all the five suspects were answered in this moment, this very human moment that required no dialogue, and every time I tell this story, I finish by saying, sometimes you're good, and sometimes somebody just farts. <laughs> that seems a lovely note on which to end. A bit of a bum note, I thought. A bit of a bum note, yeah. Um, before, there's... 300 people here and I don't know want to know what farts are brewing here so let's, let's wrap this up um, uh, that is it from the 250th episode of the Empire Podcast it's been a blast join us next week for more film related fun we'll be joined by Gore Fabinski director of A Cure for Wellness he has no fart anecdotes uh, I can tell you that for sure uh, until then of course it is time to say thank you to our amazing guest Christopher McQuarrie it is um 
We, we could go on for a couple more hours, I'm guessing, but they do have to use the screen for another movie after this. Um, thank you, of course, to all the companies who helped out with our spot prizes, including Last Exit to Nowhere, Eureka, Organic Publicity, Arrow Films, Sony Pictures Home Entertainment, and Fetch Publicity. Thanks to Paul Fickery and the incredible team here at the Prince Charles Cinema for making this possible. Thank you so much. And of course, thank you to you guys. I say this every time we do a live podcast, but I absolutely mean it. We could not do this without your support. Uh, the support you guys show us week in, week out for five years has been phenomenal. Uh, and we couldn't do it without you. Or we could, but it'd be no fun. Uh, it'd be just me farting in the booth. Um, uh, and that is it from us. It is goodbye from James Dyer, who's over there. It's goodbye from Phil Dissemlin, wherever he is. He's at the back. Goodbye from Helen O'Hara. Bye-bye. Thank you. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to figure out just what the hell Tom Cruise is going to fall off in Mission 6. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. See you next time. Good night. (laughs) 